preaching of God's Word once more is in in Exodus chapter 34, and there at verse 6. And we'll read once more for context, verses 5 through 8. Exodus 34, reading 5 to 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord, and the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation." Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. It's there in, at the end of verse 6 that we find the words for our consideration. The Lord is proclaiming His name, and as He does, He declares this, that the Lord is abundant in goodness and truth. We have rejoiced to have this passage before us because it is God's own testimony and proclamation of Himself to us. The whole of God's Word, of course, is His proclamation. Every word, every jot and tittle that is found in the sacred Scriptures is the Word of God. And here we find a record of His very immediate declaration of His name to us. As if we ask somebody, well, who are you? And they were to tell us about themselves. Here, of course, God is declaring not an idealistic view of Himself, as you and I are uh, aware of men and women and even ourselves on occasion doing, but He is declaring what He is in truth. This is really what He is. And yet He's highlighting and He is focusing upon, as He says in the previous chapter, verse 19, His goodness. And so He is highlighting that which is most beneficial to us. We've seen His transcendence in the very fact that He has to come down. He descended in the cloud. A cloud, of course, children you'll be aware, is something that often shades and keeps from a full uh, view of all that's before us. And there's something of that being implied here, that not everything that God is is being fully uh, discovered, because as he said in the previous chapter, no man can see my face and live. And yet, what is being made known is truly being made known. So we acknowledge that there are secret things, hidden things, and yet here the revealed things are truly revealed. His name, Jehovah, the Eternal One, God Almighty. We've considered His mercy, His grace, His long-suffering, and now we have these handful of words put together. And You'll notice that it is a construct together. He is abundant in goodness and truth. These are brought together as one idea. These few words are rich. Even the word abundant, of course, is a word that can be translated as rich. In itself, it is a word which speaks of greatness. Sometimes it's translated by the simple word of much. And other times when speaking of individual things, many. And so the notion is that it is in a great number or a great quantity, or a great quality. Uh, Of course, it is contrary to any sense of something that's small. What is it that's so great? It's both His goodness and His truth. And yet there's something in this word goodness we have to draw out. It's rightly translated, of course, and yet it's more frequently translated with the word mercy. In fact, as it appears in the next verse, verse 7, keeping mercy for thousands. Overwhelmingly, it's this which is 
the word to translate this Hebrew, and it speaks of his covenant love. But it's broader than that also, because we saw the same word in uh, Psalm 136, his mercy endureth forever. Temporal things are the outpouring of this goodness and mercy. And then we're struck by this word truth. We might think, and we want to be wrong entirely, that it's just that he is objectively true. That's, of course, accurate. But the word is speaking more about the fact that he is perfectly faithful. So we use an expression sometimes, one is true to his word. He keeps truth. That's the way this word is used. He is faithful to all that he said. So you think of Christ's words, not one jot or tittle shall perish from the law. Now, brethren, think of that for a moment. If there were a written record of every word you've spoken, would it be able to be said of you that not one word you've spoken should fail? Of course, the answer is no. Well, what if we were just to have a transcript of everything you've said today? And again, the answer would have to be no. There are some things, not sinfully, but some things that you speak out of ignorance only to discover later that you were mistaken, that your judgment was off, the facts weren't fully understood, and so on. But here this word truth comprises this notion that all that he says is most accurate, but also is certainly faithful. And so it's this, His goodness or mercy and His truth, that is in abundance. And so what you'll see as you start to work these things together is that what God is declaring is that His faithful mercy is of the highest sort. It is of the richest measure, the most and greatest abundance. And so the greatness of God's faithful mercy is by Himself declared. Now this has tremendous application to all matter of circumstances, whether conviction of sin or enduring trial and affliction. Um, The fact that God is faithful to His Word His promises and so on is, of course, of great encouragement. Notice how in a couple of instances this very thought works out. So if you turn to the book of Lamentations, a work that is in no little way full of heaviness, of trial, misery, difficulty, and peril. And yet, as many of you will know in this book, Lamentations chapter 3, there is a rich testimony of the Lord's great grace. So you can see a little bit of the agony and misery and think for a moment what this is expressing. If you just look at verse 16, He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. As thou hast removed my soul far off from peace, I forgot prosperity. Notice in verse 19, he acknowledges his affliction, his misery, his, the wormwood and gall. He has this in remembrance, verse 20. He is humbled, so he's abased. He is low. But then he says in verse 21, this I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. What could possibly meet one in such a state and minister hope? It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in Him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him. To the soul that seeketh Him. And so on. Notice, he is in the midst of desperate straits, desperate difficulties, intense affliction and pain, not just personally, but as he's viewing the corporate upheaval of God's people, he is struck to the core. And yet his solitary cause of comfort is the Lord's faithfulness 
to His merciful way. So it is, the Lord is good unto them that wait for Him. Brethren, is it not the case that faith is easy when it is instantaneously answered, but faith is proved when there is a delay to those longed-for mercies. We can see another aspect of this faithful mercy that encourages God's people. For instance, in Micah chapter 7, we considered this last week, again with reference to God's goodness. Verse 18, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And Thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham which Thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. You see all of that brought together. It's His mercy and His truth in covenant which He has sworn long ago. And this, in the midst of these trials, is the bedrock, immovable spiritually, that is the foundation for all comfort and peace in the worst of conditions. And so, brethren, what we have before us in the passage in the Lord declaring and proclaiming His name is indeed of the highest help to us in the lowest of places that we might find ourselves. Consider then three things. Firstly, the testimony of His mercy. Secondly, the foundation of His mercy. And thirdly, the fullness of His mercy. Testimony, the foundation and the fullness. So how is it that we know of God's mercy? Now, we have multiple ways of knowing this, of course. We know it in experience. We've read Psalm 136, and we have uh, not only the record of what He's done, but we have to admit He's fed us. He's given us food. He's delivered our souls. He's been merciful to us. And yet, when it comes down to the most basic way of knowing God's mercy, it is first and foremost by His testimony. It's His Word. His Word is what testifies of this great mercy. And so He Himself is, of course, in our passage, proclaiming His name, what He is, unto His people. And notice we've seen a variety of these things and we should remember because sometimes we might get confused and say, well, this is all fairly overlapping. Of course it is for two reasons. One, it is a testimony of God who is not a mixed or composite being. He is a simple, pure being. He is all that He is in one eternal, undivided act. This, of course, is beyond our comprehension. But we can even go further in the context and remember that all of what he's proclaiming is particularly highlighting his goodness. And so, of course, there's going to be overlap. You can think of a spectrum of colors and there are places where our eye finds it difficult to determine, well, is that still that color or is it the other? Where is the transition? It's blending as it were through. And there's something of that going on here. But notice quite simply that it's the Lord proclaiming, testifying of what He is. And He does this, of course, not only with some empty word, but He heightens that word by His covenant. And so His word in general testifies. Think of this for a moment. When we speak of the Bible, we acknowledge the Old Testament and the New Testament. These are words that are speaking of the covenantal aspect of the Scriptures. The whole Scripture is covenantal. It's testifying of God who is drawn near in mercy 
and said, I will take it upon Myself to instruct you in the way of salvation. The whole of the Scriptures is one unbroken testimony of God's mercy. And God, of course, has entered into covenant with His people and said, I will be your God, you shall be My people. And that's not an empty word. Even in our society, throughout civilization, there has been the acknowledging of the importance of covenants. And even in our godless society, there is a civil uh, penalty against those who would break validated covenants, whether in business, in renting, uh, even, at least allegedly, on the books, there is uh, uh, problems if someone were to break their marriage vow. Of course, that's been largely upended in our society today. The point is, even men understand that when someone is solemnly testifying of something and entering into this with great earnestness and uh, solemnity, there is something more weighty taking place than just someone shooting the breeze at, uh, uh, on the side of uh, uh, their life. And so when God not only says, you know, I'm merciful, but He owns this in covenant with His people, it is a heightening of all of this with such seriousness that we doubting that are challenging not only the veracity of God, His truthfulness in itself, but the utmost of all of what He is as God Himself. Because in taking up this covenant, He is, as He says elsewhere, if you can break the covenant with the sun by day and the moon by night, you'll be able to break My covenant. He's saying this is unbreakable. And so it's not just this passing casual discourse But the testimony of His mercy is settled and situated in the context of the most solemn and serious of relationships. A covenant. I will be your God. You will be My people. And then that testimony is in the covenant uh, confirmed with signs and seals. And so, He's not content, think of this, merely to leave it in His plain word, but He desires for our sake to see how true He is so that He establishes signs and seals. And so Christ says in Matthew 28, uh, go and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Think of that language. They're being brought into the enjoyment of that covenant and as a sign of it, they're being given this outward washing with water in the name of the triune God, which is God, as it were, drawing near and again building up the testimony of His mercy. And then He gives instances of promises, specific promises that are all, of course, bound up in the covenant from forgiveness of sins to sanctification to assurance of grace to uh, comfort and spiritual joy and uh, fellowship with God and the assurance of heaven. All of these things are bound up in that. But think for a moment that the way that we know those things is because God has declared them to us. They come to us by His Word. You don't know those things outside of His Word. You know those things by His Word. And so... On one point, we should see that if you take away God's Word, you take away the very means that God has provided us to know of that which we most desperately must know if ever were to enjoy God in the least bit. His Word is such an excellent provision to us that for us to marginalize it in worship, for us to marginalize it in our homes, for us to marginalize it in our secret time with the Lord, is to minimize that which maximizes for us the testimony of His mercy. His mercy is known by the Word that He has given us. Now we should add to this, His testimony has been confirmed countless times. We read of that in Psalm 136. We sing of it. When we take that up in His sung praise, 
this record of his historical works. And what are those historical works works of? They're works of the outworking of his testimony, his covenant. And so this testimony is confirmed by the activity of his mercy. And this will help us in the experience and the exercise of grace in prayer. Because we'll see all of a sudden how the Psalms unlock this for us in our prayers. And we can learn from them to rely upon God's mercy, to acknowledge God's mercy, and then to petition Him for the outworking of His mercy toward us. And brethren, this is what God is providing to us by declaring to us that He is abundant in this mercy, this goodness and truth, this faithfulness. He's, as it were, clearing the way for us to see the foundation for our hope. He's, as it were, as it were saying to me, to us, try me. Find out that I am indeed this good and faithful God. Think of how we sing of this. Taste and see that God is good. Who trusts in Him is disappointed? Is frustrated? Is you know, upended? No. Is blessed. And so the word of His testimony is meant to call us to enjoy what He is asserting to us. The testimony of His mercy is not merely an intellectual thing for us or a doctrine for us to acknowledge. It is for our benefit. It is for our miseries in those seasons and trials and the conviction of our sin. And when Satan, as it were, causes us to say, look how uh, much I've sinned and all of these things, and our consciences mount up and say, oh, woe uh, is me, I am undone. It's then that we are bounden to remember God's testimony of His mercy. What a provision that God has taken upon Himself the repetitive, and yet not needlessly so, the repetitive and beneficial declaration of this testimony that He is rich in mercy and He is true to His covenant. This is something, brethren, that we must store up in our hearts. Well, secondly, the foundation of His mercy. This covenant faithfulness, this merciful faithfulness. Upon what does the assurance of His mercy stand? Well, if you go again to Micah 7, you'll see a little glimpse of it there as it's stated. The end of Micah in chapter 7. Notice Verse 20, Thou wilt, speaking to God, Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham which Thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Notice a couple of things in this verse. It's not simply Thou wilt again testify of this truth or swear of this mercy, but it's thou wilt perform it. There is the utmost assurance that what God has promised will come to pass. On what ground? Notice, which thou, God, hast sworn. Now, this, even among men, in an age where men do not keep their word, is still a sense of assurance to us when men have taken upon themselves swearing. Particularly when they have signed their name on a document that is confirmed and uh, um, certified and so on. So we have a significant ground of assurance when we hold a piece of paper in our hand that is certified as testimony that the thing that's signified on that paper is true. Whether it's a house we've purchased, whether it's a debt that was paid off, whether it's a birth certificate, 
whether it's a marriage license, whatever it might be, we take great assurance from those things. And yet, though that's true and ought to be the case, we of course know of fraudulent efforts of men, and we know of course of falsified documents. But that doesn't upend that purpose of swearing and certifying. It only shows how wicked and vile godless men can be. Moreover, when we think of that uh, activity of swearing and certifying with solemnity in the face of others, think for a moment what's being said here of God. God's one who doesn't just tell us which would be sufficient. It would have been sufficient for God simply to say, you should know this, I'm God, therefore I'm merciful. You should know this, I'm God, therefore I'll keep my word. You should know this, I'm God, so when I say I'll forgive sinners who trust in me and call upon me, I'll do it. That's sufficient. But God has gone much further for us. And He's not, if we can think of it this way, been contented to say, I'm just going to share that. I'm just going to say it. He takes upon Himself this oath, this swearing. And notice how Hebrews makes much of this for our benefit in chapter 6. Hebrews in chapter 6. And you'll start to see then where this foundation is. <coughs> in Hebrews chapter 6, and notice at verse 17, it says, "...wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath." Notice a couple things going on there. It's being said of God that He didn't just want to give a clear statement. He wanted more abundantly to display the immutability, the unchangeable fact of His counsel. He wanted His people to know there is no chance of My Word failing. There's nothing that's going to upend what I've promised. There's nothing that's going to disprove or interfere what's taken place. And notice what goes further, or what goes on here in verse 18. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. Have you ever thanked God for the things He cannot do? Some circles that would sound almost heretical, but that's because today's world is not taught by the Scriptures. There are things that God cannot do. Not merely that He doesn't do, but that He cannot do. And everything about it has to do with sin. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. He cannot do these things that would indeed jeopardize our trust in Him. It is impossible for God to lie. And so He gave an oath. He swore. But He swore by what? He swore by Himself. There's nothing higher that He could swear by. So He swore by Himself that we might have consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Notice in verse 16, it says, men verily swear by the greater. In our profane speech today, people will quickly swear. I swear on my mother's grave, they say. Or they take God's name directly in vain. In Christ's day, it was swearing by this and that, but trying to distance themselves from a more direct profaning of God's name. Men are ever trying to point out something that's bigger than they are and saying, this is how serious I am. That's why to take an oath requires that the matter that is being sworn is truthful and is indeed accurate. 
and is worthy of so high an appeal. But here's a question, brethren. What is there that God could swear by? And the answer is, there's nothing greater than He is. So He swears by Himself. He takes His own name, as it were, and He says, I swear in My name that I will do it. Notice how it's worded in verse 14. I will bless thee and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And as Hebrews says in verse 13, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. People sometimes say things, if I don't keep my word, you can have this. You know, I'll give you a $100 down payment. If I don't keep my word, it's yours. They lose what they promised if they don't keep their promise. Well, God's saying, this is how serious I am. The immutable, unchangeable, eternal God is swearing by Himself. Which means, of course, that the foundation of His mercy is God Himself. It's not fixed upon or weighted upon or flowing from something outside of Himself that changes. It's not founded upon some circumstance and otherwise condition outside of Himself. His keeping of His mercy is His outworking of Himself. The applying of His purpose to us, which is to be of the greatest assurance to us, especially when it is we find ourselves in desperate situations. And we say, what hope is there that in my calling upon God He'll be merciful to me? And the answer we should hear resoundingly echoing through all eternity is God Himself saying, I have sworn by Myself. That's the end of it. As an oath, as an end to all of the trials and difficulties between men, as Hebrews says, God has given an oath to end all strife within us. So where is it then we are to look for the hope of His mercy. Well, get this in your mind. It's not to any secondary sign. This is where the world idolizes signs. And they say, you know, God, if you're really there, would you send a bird fly by my window right now? If you're really there, would you cause something weird to happen so I could see it? Now, we don't deny there are instances in the Scriptures where God condescends and is merciful to the weakness of men. But here's the more more encouraging fact. God has said, I give you the biggest cause of assurance because I swear by Myself. There's nothing greater I can do. There's nothing bigger I can appeal to. There's nothing higher than I that could do this for you. You see, when men are lusting after those secondary and tertiary signs, it's showing weakness in them. Praise God that He often condescends to us. But here's cause for us to be lifted up to see the overwhelming excellency of the assurance God provides us in Himself. Well, to go further, thirdly, the fullness of His mercy. Notice the text. He is not only merciful and true or good and faithful, but He is abundant in His goodness and truth. I think we can understand that to some extent. And yet, whatever our highest thought of God's mercy and truth may be, it is immeasurably, infinitely beneath the measure of His goodness and truth. We are small in our thoughts of His goodness and truth. We are weak in our esteeming and measuring of it out. How could we even begin to fathom the depth of His faithful mercy? We can start by discerning the fullness by again considering its source. It's not in us. It's not in others. It's not in circumstances of time and space. It's in God which instantly gives us an infinite measure of this goodness and truth. 
by seeing the source, we see something of its significance. You think about how all the advertising on you know, foods and particularly bottled water, and it highlights the source of the natural springs and so on, and it looks all uh, uh, beautiful, and then you read the back label and it says something like, you know, bottled at the public water outlet of this city, and you say, what's, what's going on here? Well, it's an advertising game. They're trying to get you to think this is special because look at the beautiful springs that are there. Now, certainly some bottled waters are sourced at the springs and so on, but here's the point. The source of God's mercy is in Himself. It is the most pristine, immeasurable, rich, full source that we could imagine. Indeed, we could imagine nothing greater than this, nothing better than this. And you think of how feeble men are when they think that God will be merciful because of something they've done. Here's the cause of our assurance, not in what we've done, but in God Himself and His testified Word and as that Word comes to us through Jesus Christ. This leads us to seeing and considering the fullness of His mercy by seeing what His mercy has provided. It's provided us His Word, which is, of course, in and of itself rich and full. There's not a circumstance of your life that is not amply provided for by the testimony of God's Word. There's no circumstance you can go through that cannot be fully helped by God's Word. There's no trial you're going to face that is going to outdo what God's Word provides. But we can focus on the grand display of what God's Word focuses us upon. And that is, of course, the provision of His eternal Son incarnate for sinners. Notice Luke chapter 1. This abundance of His goodness and truth, His merciful faithfulness, is as it were in a great point from the Scriptures pointing out Jesus Christ. And you see this acknowledged in Luke 1. Many other places, of course, that we could look. But notice, for instance, Luke 1, when there's the acknowledging of John the Baptist and this provision that's there and what God is doing. Notice what's said in verse 72. So here's John the Baptist, who's a forerunner, right? But now Zacharias is prophesying. And he knows what John the Baptist now means. He's the forerunner. Well, who is he running ahead of? Who is he preparing the way for? And notice, Zacharias rejoices in God who will perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He sware to our father Abraham. And he goes on testifying of his deliverance from enemies and from sin. Verse 77, verse 78, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. And so Zacharias is now seeing through John the Baptist and all the promises of the Scripture, the covenants, the oaths that God has taken upon Himself. And he sees the time has come. The great provision is now here. Jesus Christ, the Savior, is come. You see it more directly with Simeon and Anna in the next chapter. Luke chapter 2, notice verse 27. Speaking of Simeon, who was just and devout, verse 25, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Verse 27, he came by the Spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for Him after the custom of the law, then took He Him up in His arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest Thou Thy servant depart in peace according to Thy Word, for mine eyes have seen Thy salvation. And so on. Think of that for a moment. The scene there. He takes up a child in His arms and says, I've seen Your salvation. It's here. All that has been anticipated by all of your promises 
and the substance of your covenant of grace in all of the particular covenants with Abraham and with Moses and David and so on is now realized in the provision of this One, Jesus Christ. We're told by John in his first epistle, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son, gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That comes out of the abundance of His mercy and faithfulness. He swore He would do it. And when did He swear that He would do it? Well, we see the first promise in Genesis chapter 3. And think for a moment the interval between that time and the time that is before us in Luke 2. All of the upheaval, all of the challenges, all of the dark periods, all of the affliction, all of the miseries, all of the weepings. You have it in Lamentations. You have it in various other captivities. You have it in David's life. You have it in Abraham's life. You have all of these miseries gripping individuals and the church corporately. And yet, did God's Word fail? And the answer is no. God kept His Word and provided the Savior of sinners. We see the whisper of this when Moses is leading God's people out and they're complaining and they're bickering and they're committing idolatry and God is testing Moses, this type of a mediator of Jesus Christ. And He says, I'm going to leave. I'm going to build a new people out of you, Moses. And Moses, in the spirit of grace and supplication, falls before the Lord and cries out, no, no, This is your people. How will the nations know this truth unless you stay with this people? And God, remembering His covenant, faithful to His Word, maintains His work with that people. What's being shown is this. He is faithful. And instead of pulling back, He continues with and ultimately provides that promised seed, not only of Eve, not only of Abraham, but of David, Jesus Christ, the Savior, who then fulfilled all righteousness, suffered on the cross for sinners, died, was buried, rose again. That's the provision of His faithfulness to His promise. You start to understand such passages of Scripture that say, you know, if He's not withholding from us, his only begotten Son. Think of that. If He's not withholding His only begotten Son, why would we doubt that He would ever keep back any good that He's promised to us that is needed by us? We can think further of the fullness of His mercy by its effect. What is brought forth because of His mercy? Well, we could list them off and time hastens, but you think of forgiveness of sins. You think of re- reconciliation with God fellowship and enjoyment with God now. You think of the assurance of salvation, the indwelling of the Spirit. You think of the fellowship of saints, the growing in holiness, the longing for heaven, the assurance of heaven, and one day the experience of heaven. And why does any of that come to pass? It comes to pass because of the abundance of His mercy. Who among us could begin to quantify the riches of grace it took to bring forth the forgiveness of our sins. One sin is an infinite evil against God. How many sins could you consciously enumerate from your own life? If you sat down literally with a piece of paper and a pencil, how many could you rattle off in ten minutes? Realizing that every single one of them is an infinite evil committed against God. And yet God is such a God that He is faithful to His Word and says, I forgive sinners who call upon Me and receive of Me in Jesus Christ. The effect merely of seeing the forgiveness of one sin, let alone those innumerable sins of each one here, as well as all throughout the history of the world and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, surely we have to realize that the fullness of His mercy and truth is immeasurable. We read earlier in Lamentations, we can see the effect as well of the fullness of this mercy. The things that Jeremiah saw and his generation witnessed 
the trials, the hardships, the miseries there. And yet, what was it that sustained Jeremiah in Lamentations? What was it that historically sustained the church in the midst of such afflictions? It was the knowledge of the mercy of God. God's mercy sustained in the most hard and difficult of pressures and pains. And so it is even today. Its effect, it brings forth forgiveness, reconciliation, all the spectrum of salvation. It upholds us in the worst of trials and hardships. It's so astounding that those who go through the heaviest of afflictions are often brought to the clearest sight of the fullness of His mercy. We see it in Jeremiah in Lamentations 3. We see it as well in the martyrs and those who are well-nigh martyrs in various times of imprisonment and hardship. We can also see the fullness of His mercy by considering its end. What is the end of His faithful mercy? It is the beatific vision of God. You and I will be everlastingly blessed by the blessed sight of God in Christ for all everlasting time and eternity. Your joy will never reach a static reality. It will never get to a point where you say, well, I guess this is what it is. I guess I've reached the height. You know, every temporal enjoyment reaches its pinnacle. And eventually, to sustain that actually becomes wearisome to our existence. So you think, you're hungry, you take a bite of good food, and you say, I could eat all night. You take ten more bites, and you start to realize, you know what, I can't. And if you're forced to eat that same food which was so delicious to you and causing all of this uh, joy within your body, if you were forced to eat it for hours, it would become repulsive to you. You can do the same thing with every temporal blessing in this life. Every single one of them, were they to be volume up, the rest of your life would become a trial and an affliction to you. But with the blessed sight of God in Christ, it will only be the everlasting increase of your joy. In other words, its end is the never-ending enjoyment of God. That's where everything's going. You and I, by God's grace, because of His mercy, and because of His faithfulness to His promises, in Christ Jesus, we who are in Christ, will never know a day when we don't know the blessedness of increasing joy in heaven forever. What a glorious truth. Well, brethren, as we close, here is a secure resting place for your souls in every circumstance of temporal, bodily, spiritual, trial, hardship, and misery. There is nothing that you can go through in this life, nothing, that does not have a sure ground of encouragement in this truth because He is abundant in His goodness and mercy. What this leaves us with then is we need to learn what He's promised. We must take up His promises because these are the means by which we are given the assurance. You think of lamentations. What was it that struck him? God's not going to forsake His promise. That's the hope. What is it that Simeon so rejoiced in? God is fulfilling His promise. Not just to me that I would see the Lord's Christ before I die, but to the people of the world. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. Because He's come to give light to the Gentiles. And this is true for all of us. Our miseries find their answer in the promises of God, not man. The promises of God. And yet, we're tempted to look every other place for comfort than to God in His Word. Tempted to look to a spouse. Tempted to look to our children. Tempted to look to our paycheck. Tempted to look to the church. Tempted to look to a pastor, to an elder, to the increase of officers, to the multiplying of churches. 
to all of these different things, surely for which we give thanks, but none of which can truly satisfy the need for assurance that God's Word will stand victorious. All of His promises will indeed be seen to be what they are, yea, and in Christ. Amen. If you and I are going to weather afflictions, bear our crosses, answer convictions, and find joy and peace and comfort, it will not be through the mindless carelessness and general vagaries of saying God's good. It will be in the concrete taking of what the good God has given us in His Word for our assurance, His promises. We have to be students, and yet more than students, we have to be those who come to feast upon His particular promises. God's good, that's needed. But God's good in promising me that if I confess my sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's a promise I need when my sins are heavy. God's good. That's great. It's true. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what I need when it seems everything else is going away. You see, the promises are the specifying of this grand truth of His goodness. And if we think that we can simply live upon vague thoughts of God's goodness, we think in a different way than God thinks. Because God doesn't think that way because He knows us. He's given us specific promises which are thus needed for our spiritual good. Because those are the means by which our souls are brought to the assurance that He is what He says He is. He will do what He says He will do. And He will fulfill every word which He has spoken. Brethren, here is a sure ground of assurance. The abundance of God's goodness and truth, all of which directs us to His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?